Luckily for you, the answer to the great question of life, the universe and everything is to be found in this podcast, A Worker's Guide to Everything. Sometimes cans, often bad language, always solid politics. This is the Trademark Belfast podcast. Listen out for trademark regulars and very special comrade guests and fellow travellers talking all things lefty, Ireland and the world. We remain, as always, anti-sectarian, anti-racist and anti-fascist. Enjoy. Buenigisoltas. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Trademark Belfast podcast. My name's Sean Byers and with me today is our comrade, Stuart McGill, who you know is a regular in the podcast and has really become the person we turn to when we're trying to figure out what's going on in the financial system and global capitalism more broadly. So Stuart, we're currently in the teeth of a cost of living crisis that shows no signs of letting up. It's thought that at least a third of the population are already struggling to feed themselves, to pay their energy bills, to cover their rent. There's been an explosion in credit card debt, a huge increase in the number of people saying that they're having to skip meals. And even food banks are reporting that they're struggling to keep up with demand for their services. And that's before we even think about what the winter might bring in terms of heating bills and the really difficult choices that people will be forced to make. So for a long time, the Tories have resisted calls for intervention. Um, but last week, there was a bit of a U-turn and Rishi Sunak, the treasurer, announced a relief package worth about 10 billion, they say, which includes a £650 one-off payment to low-income households and 400 quid of their energy rebate for their bills for all households. The government says that this will be partly funded, at least by a windfall tax on oil and gas companies. So just to take, kick off, really, what's your assessment of this intervention? Will it even touch the sides in terms of what people need right now? Well, I think it's basically inadequate. Uh, and it also rewards quite a few people that don't actually need uh, the subsidy. I also think it looks at, um, looks at things from the wrong direction, um, just in terms of the inadequacy and also some of the bullshit which goes around about can we afford this? Now, this hundred sorry, £830 rise in the cap spread over 22 million households. This suggests a collective cost of up to £19 billion. Now, I, I think they should just stop any increase and make the energy companies take the hit completely. And even if the government has to bail them out for the full £19 billion, so what? The Chancellor's super deduction tax break for the big corporations is going to cost almost £13 billion this year. Stamp duty holiday costs 6.4 billion, and that's pretty much the cost of this anyway. Uh, and when you look at the pathetic windfall tax, a serious 95% tax on the North Sea windfall profits would raise 13 billion, much more than the 5 billion which you want from Sunak. I also, to a certain extent as well, the windfall tax should be pursued. But remember, there's going to be issues which profit, which manipulate a profit figure they're going to be using. So I suspect they won't get quite so much as they want out of that. And there's various loopholes in there as well regarding giving them room for investment. So I suspect certainly having worked in that industry myself and one of my previous jobs, unfortunately, was to go ahead and do manipulation like that. The windfall tax will probably gather much less than we expect. But I don't think we should be looking at it this way anyway, mate. I think rather than compensating people inadequately for the effects of their price increases, we should be looking at restricting them, okay? Because the price hikes affect companies as well as individuals, and this has got knock-on effects on inflation. 
that thing from the FT, which I sent you yesterday, right, reported that Eurozone producer prices have surged at the fastest pace since the launch of the single market. Oliver Rakow, chief German economist at Oxford Economist, who does sound a very important guy, he says that uh, inflation rates have been broadening beyond energy for quite a while. There's always a chain of events, and there's no denying that higher energy and commodity prices feed through into other products like food and drink. So from that point of view, you might compensate people for some of the effects of the higher prices, but they're going to get shafted elsewhere. Uh, and a lot of small to medium enterprise businesses are facing serious gas bills on average 250% higher than they were last year. And some steelmakers apparently are pausing production in the face of rising electricity prices because, and also with those guys, it's a real problem because they've got some seriously high fixed costs. If they stop producing, they'll land with a fixed cost, they lay people off. And that's at a time whenever you have stagflation, prices are rising and people are laid off affecting the economy elsewhere. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned that. I read, I saw someone on Twitter says, you know, like with the energy uh, price cap increasing by £800 and from October, um, the average bill will go up to about 2800 So if you count in the, the relief that the government's given us, we'll probably lose about 1500 <laughs> or so on, on average. Like uh, I read somewhere that uh, BP and Shell, two of the big fossil fuel companies, both headquartered in London, are due to make about $40 billion in profits this year and plan to hand out $9.5 of that to shareholders. But then at the bottom of the food chain, I suppose you have smaller energy suppliers, the companies that are actually supplying the gas and the oil and the electric to our households, some of those going bankrupt. Um, in the past year alone, I think 31 energy suppliers in the UK have gone out of business or have been taken over by one of the big six. So the question I want to ask you is, what, to what extent is profiteering going on in the energy sector? And where exactly is it happening? In other words, what's the relationship between the profits being made by BP and Shell, the likes of BP and Shell, and the bills that are coming through our door? Well, they supply the energy companies that give the stuff to us. And so uh, with the big six, okay, they will tell us that they need to maintain their profitability. Well, they don't actually use that phrase, but it seems to be an assumption that they must maintain their profits. So therefore, the consumer uh, and other smaller and bigger companies will need to go ahead and pay the bill. When you look at the profiteering here, it's absolutely scandalous. And bear in mind with the big six as well, over the last five years, they have given away 82% of their profits to shareholders. So it is not our fault they might find themselves short on reserves to deal with this crisis, and we should not have to pay the cost. That's why I think we should do what the French have done and just tell them, no, you take the hit. But we'll talk a wee bit more about that later. But looking at some stuff here, I mean, um, I think Centrica, British gas owner, they updated the stock market to say expected profits to be at the top end of previous guidance. So despite the big increase in the wholesale gas prices, they're going to make uh, a fairly hefty profit in line with previous uh, previous forecasts. Uh, SSE recently upgraded the profit outlook to 1 billion for the year to 31st March, a rise of 10% on last year's performance. And E.ON. They're forecasting earnings from the group's core business to jump from 1.6 billion in 2021 to 2.1 billion in 2022. Uh, now, when you look at the 
big companies like BP, Exxon, and Shell. Some of these figures here are simply fucking scandalous. I mean, BP, underlying profit rose to 6.2 uh, in the first three months of this year. More than double, sorry, $6.2 billion, I should say, sorry. More than double the $2.6 billion they made in the same period last year. Exxon Mobil, who own ESSO, they reported profits of 5.5 billion during the first quarter, up from 2.7 billion in the same period in 2021. Sorry to go through all these figures, but it's important to get this across. These people are making some serious money, not just at our expense, but the expense of the rest of the economy as well. Uh, and uh, looking at Shell, its adjusted earnings uh, rose to $9.1 billion in the first quarter from 3.2 in the same period last year. Now, last year was not a great year for the oil companies, but they're still doing pretty damn well. And I think when you, you're talking about buybacks there, I think I saw somewhere in the FT quite recently that they're looking at returning, the big companies are looking at returning $38 billion, $38 billion to shareholders, okay, which is a enormous figure and when they talk about uh, soon i kept on talking about this will affect their ability to invest this is such bollocks the head of bp actually did say it wouldn't affect their ability to invest they're making noise about it now because the windfall tax has come in place but they have had plenty of cash for a long time to invest um somebody also said i forget who the person was um, CBI person, that was it. He said basically this is going to have a big impact on their ability to invest in uh, energy saving and green investment. Again, bollocks, they've had the money for a hell of a long time. They have chosen not to. Interestingly, a couple of years ago, they made a lot of money up until about 2014. Then they started to lose cash. Uh, and the investors actually said, we don't want you to go ahead and invest anymore. We want you to go ahead and start returning money to us. And uh, some of the bigger companies, including some of the uh, uh, also the smaller shale companies, have actually blamed the investors on this, saying we want to go ahead and invest in proper industry. We want to go ahead and invest and produce more. But it's the shareholders keep on demanding more money from us. And there is something to be said for that. No doubt about that. The, the shareholders are massively important here. And this raises issues about the way our system works and about the future of capitalism, etc. Because do we really believe that given the priorities of the people that control and direct really fundamental parts of the economy like this, there is a capitalistic way out of the environment crisis? Discuss. Yeah, and uh, I was speaking to someone recently just on that. Now, I know pension funds aren't invested heavily in the fossil fuel sector, but I was speaking to someone who used to be a pension fund trustee uh, for, for one of the unions. And... Uh, he says, like, if you look at the market now, like, there, there's no way trustees are going to heed any call to divest from the fossil fuel sector when it's performing so well. Absolutely not. You'll get sacked for doing so. <laughs> so you can see, well, that's the whole thing. The whole imperative of the system is to make dosh. And you might make all the right noises about equitable, equi sorry, whatever they call it, ESG, the environmental and bullshit investment there. But frankly, everybody knows it's bollocks. If the people... If you are managing a fund and your performance is 3%, the guys that invested in oil are doing 10%, uh, then you ain't going to get a good bonus at the end of the year and you might have to go ahead somewhere and get a proper job. Mm. Our lives are just totally bound up with us, the system. Yeah. Uh, I want to look briefly at the issue of inflation in general. As you've already touched on this briefly, the, the Financial Times article you sent to me, like, which was really interesting. Um, so the last time we talked about inflation on the podcast, 
Um, we talked about inflation in specific sectors, energy in particular, but now, as you say, it's spread to the wider economy. But I think it's important that we try to break this down, try to break down what's happening here, because my sense of it is there's a lot of smoke and mirrors involved, certainly in terms of how it's represented. So you hear the spokespersons for big business saying, look, lads, this is beyond our control. We're faced with increased production and wholesale costs. You know, we'll take a bit of a hit, but some of this will have to be reflected in the prices that consumers pay. Um, and part of the narrative as well is the idea that wage demands are playing a major role in driving up inflation, driving up prices, and that workers are just going to have to be a bit more moderate in terms of what they're asking for. But if you look at the evidence, this isn't entirely true, is it? Uh, you're being very, very gentle there, Sean. This is just utter, utter bullshit. So I get pretty angry about this because so many people who should know better, I think maybe they attended A-level economics or even degree economics where you get taught this bullshit, which is all basically dedicated towards maintaining the capitalist system and obscuring reality uh, rather than actually exposing it. Economic Policy Institute in the States, which is a very, very good little uh, website, they did some analysis a while ago. And they looked at, I think since, yeah, they looked at inflation between basically now and 2020. And they look, they look talking about a 6.1% increase in price. Strikingly, they say over half of this increase, 54%, can be attributed to fatter profit margins. Increased labor costs contributed less than 8% of the increase. Now, from 79 through to 2019, increased profits only contributed about 11% of price growth and labor costs over 60%. Obviously, these days as well, non-labor inputs, basically uh, supply chain cock-ups. They've helped drive prices up more than usual in this current recovery. But the key figure there is 54% of the price increases are down to fatter profit margins. US corporate profit margins are at a 70 year high and they've risen 37% in the last year. Again, sorry about the figures, but these figures are important. Uh, one survey in the States showed half of retailers admitting to raising prices by more than the increase in costs with the larger firms most likely to be doing so. Uh, and one uh, asset manager, back to those guys again, he said, what we really want to find are companies with pricing power. In an inflationary environment, that's the gift that keeps on giving. And we were talking about this before. Even fucking Morgan Stanley recently agreed with this one. All right, they said, uh, profits must shrink to absorb the pain of inflation, making up for decades in which capital has increased its share at the expense of workers and consumers alike. Now, Morgan Stanley are not exactly comrades, so as you know, but they say here, workers share of corporate revenues fallen for two decades to the benefit of owners and investors. Uh, Labour shortage is closing that gap, all right, which is one of the reasons why they're increasing prices, as well as, of course, increasing their profits. And companies have to shift cash from profits to pay, according to the bank. Uh, now, I can go on and talk about uh, the UK situation in similar terms, if you want me to, because the UK figures, the data isn't quite so good as it is for the States, but there's still some interesting stuff there. Shall I do yeah, that? I think I, I've read some of the stuff you sent through. It makes a similar point, like, you know, in general, that, that these price increases are coming in large part from increases in corporate profits you know this can't come from underlying costs it's coming from capital deciding that they they want to increase profits and 
all of this other stuff is used as a as a mask, a smoke and mirrors, as I say, to try to disguise what they're actually doing. I thought it was really interesting that Morgan Stanley come out with this. Um, and I asked you before we, we come on here, like what 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 has brought Morgan Stanley or someone within Morgan Stanley to articulate this position, which totally goes against the orthodoxy, totally goes against what you're taught in the economics textbooks, and actually goes against the interests the interests of the class that they represent. Uh, I think it could be a realization that we can't go on like this. Uh, you can't keep on shafting people, uh, and people at some point will have to respond. I mean, I think we should be much more angry than we are, and I think we should be out there burning stuff down if we could afford the petrol to do so. Uh, but at the moment, all right, people are not angry enough. They will probably get more so, particularly after this winter. I mean, having come back from Chile, I was in Chile um, to do some stuff on the book, for which I will give a bit of a plug now. The Roaring Red Front, available on October the 3rd, guys. But I went to Chile in 2019 when the riots were on, um, which my wife, of course, was absolutely delighted about. And we had a chat with a few people there whenever the, uh, the social uprising was in its pomp. And they said everybody in the world thought Chile was doing great because the overall figures looked good. It was always a ticking time bomb there because a lot of people were making a lot of dosh and the Chileans weren't. Uh, and they were very aware of the inequality in the country and the fact that some people were doing great. A lot of the country was on its ass. They increased the cost of travel. Santiago, like most big cities these days, regular people can't afford to live in the center. So they had to they increase travel by some ridiculous amount. That's what kicked off the right. And I think there is some genuine concern that with the price increases we're all having to deal with just now, there will be genuine subversion and genuine anger. Personally, I hope there is. But I would imagine that Morgan Stanley and others, because I think it was also the Boston group I sent you some stuff a while ago. Mm -hmm. They were writing stuff about the, the impact of uh, corporate power and concentration on the place. And, uh, they are also concerned with the same thing. Yeah, they're worried about, worried about societal breakdown, Mad Max. Yeah, yeah. Well, to be honest, mate, given Heads the on bikes. That, yeah. <laughs> I have done. the bike ready. <laughs> and various other things in my garage I don't want to talk about in public. Like there's a there's a number of things that we would say contribute to that enormous growth of corporate profits over the last 20 to 30 years. And it's not just an argument we would make, like it's empirically you can demonstrate it, you know. So one of them, and it's in that Adam Two, that interest in Adam Two's article that, that was produced on, on inflation. Uh the decline in trade union density and trade union power. Trade unions are much weaker than they were, um, say, 30, 40 years ago. And as a result, the workers are winning back, back less in terms of uh, wage increases. Um, and the second thing you mentioned um, is economic concentration and the role of monopoly power. Is that what's enabling these companies to do this? Oh, I think absolutely. Yeah, let's have a quick look at some UK figures before I start to talk about that in detail. Like, so I want to get this across. Uh, the economy in the UK grew in real terms by 8%, sorry, 8.7% um, Q1 2022 compared to Q1 2021. Uh, corporate profits in that period grew by a ridiculous amount. I forget what the actual figures were, but looking at some stuff here, yeah, corporate profits actually grew uh, 
Q1 2022 compared to Q4 2021 by 8%. So these guys are having a good time. When you look at the real wages figures here, uh, on an annualized basis, Q1 2022 compared to Q1 2021, average pay uh, allowing for inflation was 1.9% lower than the previous year. If you include bonuses, it was 0.7% higher. But given the fact that the economy grew by, what, 8.7% in that period, it's obvious that some people are getting the benefits and it's not the guys on pay. Uh, okay, most, uh, most workers don't get bonuses. CEOs and senior management get bonuses. Absolutely. That's why they did it separately from bonuses. And also the private sector has done not bad compared to the public sector. The public sector saw a real wage drop of 4.3% in that period. Uh, in terms of the... In terms of the power of a corporate concentration, I mean, just look at those figures from the, the recent competition. What's it called? The Competition and Mergers Association, the CMA, uh, which talked about the increase in markup. The biggest and most profitable companies, the markup has risen from 58% in 2008 to 82% in 2020. All right. And it's that sort of market power that allows the oil and gas majors to extract the rents. Uh, so too with the four agribusinesses that control 90% of the globe's grain trade. I think we need to remember that as well. This is a global issue. It's not just an issue in the UK. Uh, and uh, you look at pharmaceutical profits during the pandemic. Absolutely insane. Uh, and again, the Boston Federal Reserve information, which maybe we can stick up on the website, goes this. So that markets increasingly dominated by a few companies are having a direct impact on inflation. Uh, and so inflation isn't being caused by a wage price spiral. It was interesting a while ago, the Bank of England governor came out with the usual ritual stuff about it. it's all yeah. those bastards in the working class looking to increase. And even the FT, even Martin Sanbu in the FT, who I seldom agree with, he came back and said, no, this is not the way to look at it. Right, we seem to regard the profits of capital as sacrosanct. So it's okay for them to go ahead, <clears throat> excuse me, and increase profits at the expense of everybody else. And that was the FT questioning the Bank of England governor who came up with the usual ritual bullshit about cost push inflation. When you look at these figures here for the, uh, the markup, I mean, these markups have risen, what, from 2008? And since 2008, real wages for the working guy have barely increased. In fact, for most of us, if you take into account housing costs, etc., we're worse off than we were then. Yeah, and some of these fuckers, you mentioned the Bank of England, some of these fuckers who continue to hold on to this position would happily endure, induce, bring about an, a recession, hammer workers to the extent they would bring about a recession in order to try to correct things as they would as they would put it. It's totally sociopathic behaviour. Like, Oh, absolutely. I think when in the old days, it was seen as a government, well, I say old days, the, I guess the 35 golden years between the end of the Second World War and 1980, whenever I first started doing economics in the 70s, it was taken as given uh, that the government had the responsibility to produce full employment. And so inflation, interest rates, etc., uh, and a level of employment, they were all seen as things that governments had to look at and they had to manage everything with a view towards maintaining full employment. Thatcher more or less killed that. The one thing that matters is controlling inflation. If you don't give a shit about anything else, then you can control inflation relatively easy. If you induce a, a recession by increasing interest rates, which is a completely inappropriate response to the price pressures we have now, uh, then at least you've managed to go ahead and keep your inflation down 
uh, and you do manage to suppress the working classes at the same time. We'll maybe talk about what our our response would be uh, in a moment, like. But this might sound like a bit of a tangent, like. But you did mention that, that it being a global problem. You mentioned the the different sectors that that are affected, agriculture and and so on. Um, so I think it's interesting and worth looking briefly at, at something we've talked about before. A while back, we did a whole podcast on the murky world of commodity traders, which are basically the the devil incarnate. Um, a handful of them essentially control the global supply of essential commodities and raw materials. So, first of all, remind us who these fuckers are and tell us what they're getting up to in the midst of this inflationary crisis. Are they making a killing? Uh, they are certainly making a killing. I think you've been a bit tough on the devil there. He was actually just doing God's will, Sean. Anyway, without getting into Pilgrim's Progress or that sort of stuff here, commodity traders are an absolute bunch of bastards. And it's interesting you ask who they are. There are the regular people that we've many people have heard of, like uh, like Blencore, Trafigura, etc. But we have to remember that these days, uh, trading in commodities is a big business of the oil majors as well. Uh, and uh, that has a that has an impact on what's happening right now. Uh, people are beginning to catch on about this. I saw a Guardian article a while ago, which uh, reported that uh, exports are warning that little publicized energy traders, most of whom work for the world's largest oil companies, banks and privately held trading houses are partly to blame for what's happening now. Uh, and uh, I think a few people are actually catching on to this. But when you look at the fact that you look at the size of the oil's future market, now, something like 13 times the physical amount of oil is traded on these markets. These are commercial trades which basically buy in or give you the option to buy oil at a certain price in the future. And this market has risen massively lately. Uh, according to the CME Group, the amount of crude oil futures contracts traded daily on the platform rose in 2022 over 2021, significantly in that period, and is nearly double that of a decade ago. Uh, and rising prices and volatility are an indication of how much speculative froth there is in this market. Since the day before the Russian troops went to war against Ukraine, the price of a barrel of oil was $90 then. Since the invasion, there's been no real significant change in supply. It went to $124, fell back to $95, and I think is back up at $123 dollars a barrel today, which is over 90% higher than the price we had one year ago. So the speculation there, despite the fact that many people deny this, I think is important. Just the fact that so much money is attracted into that market, um, like the housing market in London, about 25% of the price is done, probably, probably more than that here, is down to speculation from overseas investors. So, this, so the, the size of the market is so great and the role of speculation is so great that it massively distorts the price, you know, above and beyond supply chain issues and war and whatever else that is, is factoring in here. Absolutely. I mean, you just look at the fundamentals, which, I mean, the fundamentals are, are, haven't changed significantly, really. Uh, but when you look at that price, that went, it was at what? It was something like 63, 64 a year ago, up to 124 right now. Uh, it was $90 before the war kicked in, but a 
massive amount of speculation takes place here and it kind of makes sense because if you think the price of oil has gone up and there is a huge part of our economic surplus which is dedicated to speculation people are going to hammer into oil and that will encourage more people to come into it so therefore you get the price increases at the, at the pump and those price increases at the pump tend not to go down quite so quickly as they go up whenever the price of the price of oil does collapse again that's a little bit more price gouging by the companies uh, you look at gas as well, mate. Putin in November announced that Moscow might actually increase supply to stabilize prices. On that particular day, I think gas prices were 400 pence per therm in the morning, uh, and it finished, I think, at 266 pence in the same day because Putin announced he might actually increase the supply. And I think that demonstrates how much speculative drive there was in that price. Uh, and bear with me for a while longer here, because this I think is important about this. In October uh, 2021, the world's top houses were told by brokers and exchanges to deposit hundreds of millions of dollars in extra funds to cover their exposure to soaring gas prices. Uh, now, these guys are traditionally very, very secretive, but one company, Governor, gave a rare glimpse into the size of its hedging and trading operations. It showed this, they had to go ahead and do some prospectus. So I think they were showing the size of their growth here. It showed that their, this is Governor, a big trader, their pre-sold or hedged inventories totaled $5.3 billion in June of 2021, which was up from $2.8 billion in 2018. Natural gas and liquefied nat natural gas, that trading accounted for nearly half of its traded volumes, about 45%. Now, that level of increased investment in gas is obviously going to have an impact on prices, encouraging future speculative investment, etc. And we end up with the ridiculous increase in prices that we're having to deal with now. So it just goes in the speculative sort of, sort of spiral that continues to push up the, the price. Absolutely. Um, I mean, totally, been, totally detached from the reality on the ground. Well, there have been things uh, that there have been things in the real world which have actually made a difference to gas price. You know, that about that big yeah. increase in demand from uh, uh, from Asia, uh, the lack of storage space, etc. Um, issues with the amount of gas we could get from wind. Uh, so there have been all sorts of problems which have uh, led to a, a price increase, price of gas anyway. Uh, but this stuff is uh, the speculation is definitely pro rather than counter cyclical. Okay, you've brought us back to energy, and I suppose that's that's good. That's where we can finish. So, say say we were to begin with the energy sector in terms of tackling the cost of living crisis. You know, obviously, we want to see strong trade unions pushing for real wage increases. We want to see a welfare system and social wage that guarantees people a decent standard of living. We want to see the decommodification of housing, as you say, given like the the role of housing costs in terms of crippling people um but say we were to propose a socialist solution to the cross-cutting problems in the energy sector what that might that entail and how would it go beyond the sort of narrow demand that we see including from people on the left for windfall taxes and one-off relief payments to customers uh, right. I think the priority has to be a freeze on energy prices and actually not so much that now. I mean, it's taking them back to where they were six months ago. So take the prices down. Uh, I think a windfall tax is a good idea. It should be significantly higher than it is at the moment. Uh, God, just as a punishment for the fact that remember that the big oil and gas companies have spent a fortune uh, on propagating anti-climate change or 
uh, propaganda which denies climate change and financing various uh, organizations and MPs that will do their bidding. One of the reasons why the government was so anxious not to do a windfall tax was to get given a lot of money. The Tories get given a huge amount by the, uh, by the fossil fuel industries. So a free Look, a, a windfall tax to hit them where it hurts, really, you know, to, to weaken their power in society as opposed to pay for anything, really. I think to pay for anything, but also uh, as a, uh, to a certain extent, as a punishment. In terms of weakening their power, I think we need to take the bastards over in the long term. All right, we'll get on to that whenever I talk about the more long term things. But I think as well as the freezing energy prices, uh, we also need to have some strategic, strategic price controls. I mean, supermarkets and other companies who are actually increasing prices, they should be told to go ahead and take a hit and not pass on the price increases because God knows they've made enough money lately. And we had a series of price controls like this implemented at the end of World War II to limit the impact of pent up demand on a series of obviously recently disrupted supply chains due to the war. And this, this actually makes sense, I think, even within the limited tenets of bourgeois economics. If you're concerned about the impact of a potential wage price spiral, then suppress the price increases most likely to provoke that spiral. I think we also need to take control of the housing market, build more affordable properties and institute rent control immediately. Um, there's other things that we need to think about as well, like uh, and, and immigration policies, given our aging and underskilled population. I think that needs to be addressed, but immigration shouldn't be allowed to undercut wages as it has done in the past. I think in the longer term, we need a publicly owned energy sector dedicated to serving the interests of the rest of the economy, not private profit. And we need to look at all this in terms of not just controlling inflationary pressures, but the ultimate goal of saving our environment. Because if we don't do that, then everything else is, uh, is a footnote. We need an integrated transport and energy plan with investment target at sustainability and meeting energy needs in the transition period to sustainability. And both of those plans need to be congruent with the wider plan to build a more sustainable and socially just economy. And you talked about this earlier, we need to eliminate the power of the interest groups that will resist change. I'm talking here about the energy companies that spend a fortune on propagating bullshit about climate change and buying politicians. And also speculation in energy and housing markets has to be seriously curtailed as well. This isn't a sensible way of using the economic surplus. You need some financial instruments to uh, hedge companies against big exposures. I understand that. But speculation for speculation's sake, it ends up with, well, we're going to have people this year are going to die because of all this bullshit, which is why we should be a lot more angry than we are. Yeah, that's it. And I think you hit the nail on the head there. People are going to die because of this. You know, the, the, the people are in serious trouble. And by the tail end of the year, I think we're going to see uh, a major spike in people's health issues and, and people, people dying because of this. Look, Stuart, I think that's a good point to finish off on. Thanks a lot for coming on to help make sense of some of this. Um, it's an issue I'm sure we'll, we'll return to in, in, in the future as well as other things. And we have plans for a, a series on imperialism, which we will, which we will take up uh, once Stevie comes back. Um, but in the meantime, thanks a lot again for coming on to, to help us with this. And uh, we'll speak to you again soon. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. That, comrades, was Trademark Belfast. Thanks so much for listening in. We'll see you soon, either in the trenches or on the Victory Parade.
Upper Workers and Slanger Foil.